the animation podcast, January 16th, 2006. Go infinity! Go infinity! Go infinity! Go infinity! I'm just drawn that way. I'd like to work with you if you don't mind. You will join me for dinner. Oh, goody. Now it's like this, little britches. And beyond. Hey, everybody. This is Clay. Welcome to show number 10 of the Animation Podcast. A couple things up front. First, I just want to say Happy New Year. And the second thing is that in the last show, I mentioned that there will be more of the Ron and John interview, but I've decided to get together with them once more before I put that out, so that's going to be on hold for a bit. And in the meantime, my guests for the next two shows will definitely satisfy those of you who want to hear more about computer animation and those of you who are interested in hearing about Disney's transition from 2D animation to 3D animation. He was the supervising animator on the villain Crone in the movie Dinosaur, And most recently, he was the animation supervisor for the film Chicken Little. In November, I got a chance to sit down with him when he came back to town for the Chicken Little Rap Party. And here's part one of my interview with Eamon Butler. Okay, so I'm uh, I'm contacted by a lot of people that uh, want to get into a major studio. But uh-huh. you didn't go straight into a big studio. You started off with some smaller projects, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually started off uh, in animation quite late. Um, uh, I put myself through college in my twenties on a on a uh, uh, an animation professional animation course that was actually sponsored by Disney in Ireland. It was the very first and only one they ever did. And Dave Brain came over and he was the instructor. And Dave was a Disney animator who worked on Black Cauldron and a whole bunch of stuff. And he was an amazing teacher. But Disney, in their in their grand wisdom, decided to shut down all of their European studios at that time, starting with the London studio. And by the time we finished college, it just there wasn't a need for any more. So, mm-hmm. what um, year was that? God, that was in the eighties. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a bit foggy because I drink a lot. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, coming out of there, I went to work at Murakami Wolf in Dublin as uh, an in-betweener on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, hmm. where I learned to hone and refine my craft. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, was this the uh, the Saturday morning stuff? This is the Saturday morning yeah. stuff, and um, it was fun to work on, but they're, they're, uh, they were very much concerned with quantity uh, over quality, um, as, you know, as most TV studios are. Um, but I had good experience working there for a while. And then I realized if I needed, if I wanted to get better, I needed to go work in features. Mm-hmm. So um, I sold all my belongings, bought a plane ticket, went to London for a day, and uh, interviewed everywhere and had five job offers at the end of the day. So I ended up taking a job with um, a really terrible studio called Hollywood Road <laughs> Film Productions. Are they still around? <laughs> They're gone. They, they lasted for one and a half movies, and then they, they, they busted up. They made a film called Freddy the Frog. FRO seven. FRO seven. Yeah. It was a horrible film. But um, I didn't know. I mean, you never know. That's the one thing I've learned over the years. When you go into a production, you have no idea if they're going to be any good or not, mm-hmm. and you just have to make your best guess. But I got to. Uh, but it was a real. It was a feature. It was a full. It was a full length feature, and I got to uh, uh, learn from, from some really good people, and I got opportunities that I, would, I wasn't getting at, at the film studio. And you know, again, it's a fair. I always tell people that the smartest thing you can do is take whatever break you can. 
mm-hmm. wherever you can, as long as it's moving you forward. Yeah, that's right. You know, the advice I give people on the site when they email me and stuff that I'm always say just just take what you can and learn and grow. You know? Absolutely. That's, that's it. And, and you can always learn no matter where you're at. Even if you're working on video games, there's a chance to learn mm-hmm. something. Um, but what I see a lot of people do is get their foot in the door somewhere and then give up. And just stay there. And settle in. And settle in. Yeah. And before you know it, your career is over or it just passes by. Um, and I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to, to see how good I was and, uh, and push myself harder and, uh, and be a full feature animator. And, and I had some good, good, good times, good experiences uh, in London. Um, but that project ended. And then over the, the ensuing years, I ended up moving back and forth between Dublin, London, and Paris, working on whatever I could get, basically, mm-hmm. because the market over there is very different than it is in uh, uh, in California. There weren't at that many big studios making feature films. So I worked on TV stuff. Uh, some of it was like German language or <laughs> French. So um, it was kind of fun. And were you actually animating at this time? I was animating, and um, I helped direct a TV series called Bonjour La Famille, um, which was actually the very first TV series to be in between by computer. And we sort of developed this way of animating that would allow the computer to figure out our drawings and which parts of the drawings to in between correctly. Was it kind of like morphing? Kind of like morphing. You had to draw different parts of the body on different levels. Hmm. Like arms would be separate to bodies. And it was kind of funky, yeah. but it worked and ended up being more expensive to do funnily enough than hand drawn um, but it was a fun experience and I got to travel and work in Paris for a while uh, I did some freelance directing on, uh, on a different uh, French TV series and I ended up back in Dublin on a feature film called Felide which is a German language Hitchcock adult type um, uh, kind of psycho thriller thing that we, we did about we did one act basically in Ireland and the other uh, two acts were done in Germany by mm-hmm. a company called Trick Company. You do a lot, a lot of sort of lower budget feature films and I ended up being the animation supervisor on that one um, which meant basically taking care of the animators and animate you know make sure all the X sheets were in order and, um, and you know help cast and do stuff like that. Yeah. So that was my first taste of being an animation supervisor and it was fun it was it was a sort of a low budget you know roll up your sleeves kind of a thing and everybody got stuck in and uh, I got to meet lots of guys like Doug Bennett and Jason Ryan hmm. who ended up over here at Disney shortly afterwards and it was yeah like I said I, I've always enjoyed projects that were very creative and didn't have a lot of time or money because it, it forces you to, to think on your feet and you know I've always enjoyed that process. After that, I I got kind of burned on the project. Didn't make a lot of money, and towards the end, it got. Uh, I just I just didn't feel like I wanted to do another one again. Uh, and a friend of mine gave me a call from London, and he was working on a computer game, and uh, it was just him on his own making this computer game, and he needed help on the next game. So I said, oh, you know, it's about time to try something different. It, Interestingly, at the time, it was being—it was very much looked down on by my by my peers. Getting into computer games was like, "What are you doing? That's a step backwards." Mm-hmm. I didn't look at it that way. I kind of saw it's just something something different, and I really needed to sort of reignite the fire I had in my belly right. for animation. I thought this is a different something. It's just you know, I said, "What the hell? It could be and, fresh." And were you going to be able to animate on this thing? I was going to write, direct, animate. You know, come up. I thought there's different creative challenge here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was one of the best things I've ever done. I, again, it was uh, uh, it was uh, didn't pay very well, um, but it was fun, and I had a lot of input. 
to the end product. So uh, it was it was it was fun. I mean, it was right then that I got the call from Disney. Um, Doug Bennett, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, had actually been picked up by Disney when he was in Ireland, working at Sullivan Blue Studios or Don Blue Studios, I think it was at the time, working on uh, uh, All Dogs Two. Oh, okay. He got picked up. They were basically hunting all over the world for traditional animators who wanted to work in 3D or in CGI for Fantasia 2000. They wanted that movie to look like uh, it fit into, we know, with the, with the style of Disney animation and have traditional sensibilities, but was done on the computer. And they had a hard time finding people, so they ended up traveling all over the world to try and find people. Were, were they necessarily looking for CG animators or just animators that wanted to come in transition? They, they were looking for both, mm-hmm. but um, the animators had to have some kind of traditional grounding. Right. Uh, so, so Doug got picked up, and uh, he recommended me. I sent my rail from London and I got picked up and I recommended Jason. Mm-hmm. Jason Ryan, he got picked up. So before you know it, everybody I'd worked with earlier on was all over here working for Disney. Right. And uh, it was very exciting. You know, I came in and um, uh, had to learn their software, which at the time was Power Animator version, whatever it was, 7 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, horrific piece of software. <laughs> and got four, maybe five hours of training. And, uh, had, had you actually done, like, 3D animation before? I had worked in 3D. On the computer game, I'd worked with a, a proprietary system. Mm-hmm. But it was very much very low-end um, uh, for PC games. Right. But, again, that I had to learn from scratch without any help. And that was terrifying. But all of that experience actually helped me later on when I got to supervise on Chicken Little. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to that mm-hmm. a little bit later. But, yeah, that was my, that was my background. And, um, yeah, so I've done a little bit of everything. TV feature and computer games and uh, CG features and military service and military service <laughs> but we can't talk about that alright and uh, so on Fantasia what were the um, sequences that they had you guys working on uh, I, I was brought on specifically for the Steadfast Tin Soldier sequence mm-hmm. they had just yeah. finished Pines of Rome and they were working on Tin Soldier and um, Beethoven's Fifth and uh, my director was Handel Butoy and he gave us a lot of room we, we didn't cast uh, supervisors uh, per character we just had seven animators mm-hmm. and we each took chunks so I took this sort of love scene moment between the soldier and the ballerina where he gives her the rose and um, I always found it very strange because here's a guy with one leg right and the tin soldier and the tin soldier right. not leg. Hendel <laughs> so not Hendel no Hendel had two legs I think um, uh, but yeah here's a tin soldier with one leg and he spies this ballerina who's standing on one leg and he thinks she has one leg and he's attracted to her because she has one leg. Then he pops over, gives her a flower, and she stands down. Like, she drops her other leg. And he's disappointed because she has two legs. <laughs> he's like, ah. <laughs> and I'm like, am I the only one that finds it strange? But, um, but it, was a, it was a lot of fun to work on that, that movie. We had a lot of creative input. Hendel was very collaborative. You know, something that has come up a few times is the ones and twos thing. And that was actually, there were shots animated on ones and twos, right? That's right. We mixed it up. We were just trying to see what would work and what uh-huh. would give us a traditional Something different. Feel. Something different. I've always felt like ones can get swimmy very quickly um, or, or feel heavier or more underwater than twos. And it's much, I find it much harder to time on ones. It takes a lot more effort and um, it's tricky so we said let's try two so uh, we started developing or working with the software guys to develop some tools that would help us do that timing chart came out of that mm-hmm. which we still use at the studio today and that really allowed us to, to 
get out of the graph editor and get out of the technical side of things and start thinking more about things in terms of traditional timing. Mm-hmm. So we tried stuff on twos and um, we got away from using blur. And I'm pretty happy with it. I think it still holds up today. It looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. And we used 2D backgrounds. So it was important that um, it had the same visual language that people were used to seeing uh, right. on the traditional films. We also wanted it to look like it could have been made 40 years ago. Um, I want had to have a familiar kind of feel. That was a kind of different than what you had done before, where you do a quick project, a little money. I mean, this was right. a short sequence, but it took a long time, didn't it? It took a year yeah. um, to do seven minutes, I believe, mm-hmm. eight minutes. And yeah, and it was really great to have the time to spend on making your scenes sing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was fantastic, and I hadn't always had that before. And and it, you know, if you are looking to to progress as an animator. That's definitely something you should go after. Look for opportunities where you can spell, spend a little bit more time on even one or two scenes. And, uh, you know, even if you're in video games, they do cutscenes in video games mm-hmm. where you get to polish them a little bit more and get to show people what you're capable of and refine and hone your craft. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that's, that's something else that I <laughs> advice I give is, you know, people are like, well, I, I, I don't have time to do that at my job. And yeah. I always say, well, do, do it at home, you know. Yeah, do absolutely. a test, do a short, but that's where you spend all the time you want in the world. Absolutely. You know, people forget, I say this all the time when I do lectures and stuff, that, you know, we, we all know what, the, what the, uh, uh, the definition of animation is, right? When you crack the illusion of life, it says to endow with life, and it's wonderful. Oh, it's all the harps and the god rays and stuff, and that's great. But when you get in as a professional, you realize there's small print, and the small print is to endow with life on a budget and on a schedule, which means you've got to get it done by a certain amount of time. That's mm-hmm. just the reality of what we do. Um, nobody likes to talk about it because it's not very sexy or anything like that but it's the truth and and you have to uh, cut your cloth according to the amount of time you've been given to do something and uh, features that just give you a little bit more room Mm -hmm. you know sometimes you you can push a little bit longer and uh, it's important after Fantasia was that when wildlife started? no no after Fantasia ended uh, I went on to Dinosaur okay so Dinosaur came first? Dinosaur came first okay uh, and that was, I was here the whole time, and I don't even remember. Yeah, it was being done at, at um, uh, over in Glendale. Actually, we were in 1420, which is the old animation building, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Uh, rucked up carpets, filthy walls. Yeah, but it Warehouse had the spirit yeah. of of the people that came before us, and it was it was actually I, I miss those days. Uh, it, we didn't have very fancy offices or anything, but it was kind of cool. Everybody was really close together. Yeah. Uh, and it, was, it was a really good experience uh, until the, the day the guys in the white suits showed up and taking electronic readings of everything. Oh. And uh, they were checking the EMF um, from the computers. And we were like, what the, what the hell's going on? And they were saying, no, no need to worry, no need to worry, go back to work. And it turned out that the worst offender in the building was the fish tank. It gave up more radiation than any of our computers. And so the poor lady that was sitting beside them was getting fried every day slowly. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. <laughs> um, yeah, but that sort of scares us. Anyway, uh, at the same time, Dinosaur was gearing up. Um, they were in pre-production. And I, you know, I kept wandering over to the building. I knew a couple of animators that were on the show. And it looked really exciting. They had all this incredible artwork up where showing the destruction of the world and... Uh, uh, it just seemed so biblical and important. Mm-hmm. That I thought. And at that time, they weren't really uh, settled on what style no, of movie it was. They right? didn't. They actually they were exploring mixing CG with uh, miniature work, mm-hmm. 
And um, they actually did this very elaborate test where they built a miniature forest and inserted uh, digital dinosaurs. They looked pretty cool. Um, but when they ran the numbers, it would have cost way too much money to, yeah. to do the whole movie that way. But they had these, these incredible designs that, you know, done by Tom Enriquez and Ricardo Delgado. And it was just, just really inspiring stuff. Um, and I thought, oh, I just want to be a part of this. And it was a full feature. And I just come off a short piece of a feature. So um, I, I got excited about it. And I um, uh, apparently I did well enough on Tin Soldier that they wanted to offer me my own character. And as far as Disney went, was that pretty much like all the CG guys were Tin Soldier and Dinosaur? That was it. And that was right? it. That was it. And they were hiring people. They were trying to find people. There was a massive hiring phase that went on for that movie. They had to build an entire studio mm-hmm. to do that. Shortly afterwards, we moved to the north side building up by Burbank Airport and commenced production uh, proper. And it, was, it started off really well. And then we quickly realized that we were starting kind of too early before we had the third act figured out. And it's, it's the, um, the old story. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you should really have your story figured out before you uh, put pen, you know, before you draw or, or create anything on the computer. But that went on for a couple of years. I think two and a half years I spent on that film. And right. I supervised Crone. Who right. Was, and which I, I, I thought was probably the most successful character in the movie. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. it, it, I was originally supposed to be the old lemur. Mm-hmm. Yar. That's what they had me pegged for. And um, uh, it's cause, probably because I'm short and furry, you know, but... <laughs> Uh, typecasting but there you go but they, yeah, they brought me in and they were saying okay we want you for this character so I said okay I have all these ideas right maybe I know he's a lemur but maybe have him walk on his knuckles a little bit because he's like kind of grumpy so I'm figuring out maybe he's grumpy because he's a bit old and arthritic and that's that's part of what I mean no 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 he's a lemur I'm like uh, what does that mean and they, well lemurs don't move like that and they showed me all these videotapes because lemurs are still around I was like, okay, well, what about using his tail instead of his arms so he could point with his tail and, you know, and they could, no, 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 lemurs don't do that. Mm. I'm like, but he fucking talks. <laughs> he talks English, you know, and I could not get past that. And I think there was a tremendous amount of effort spent on that film trying to make everything look real to the detriment of That's a tough restriction. Yeah, it's a bad restriction. It's bad. It, 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 it hurt everything, I believe, because it took, it's, it, I mean... When you work in 2D, the, the, the further you get away from realism, the easier it is to pull it off, mm-hmm. pretty much. The easier it is for an audience to accept what they're seeing. Right, right. The closer you get to it, everybody's an expert on what looks right or what looks wrong. Even if they can't put their finger on it, everybody knows when it's, when it's slightly off. Mm-hmm. Even a lemur. Even a lemur. So at that point, I decided, you know, screw this. I want to be a dinosaur because you can't bring one in and show me. You know what I can and can't do, so um, I went after Crown. I did a test, and they liked it, and uh, I got the part, and it was cool. Um, uh, we did we had some voice casting at the time. Kiefer Sutherland was supposed to be the original guy, hmm. and the voice, um, uh, but he didn't sound the way we wanted him to sound, and they ended up going with Sam Wright, who you know you probably know he did the um, the crab lobster guy in uh, oh. Little Mermaid. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and when I heard the voice. When I heard that they were going to cast Sam, I thought, a Rastafarian dinosaur isn't exactly what I had in mind. But it turned out that was, you know, it's just an accent he put on for that role. Uh, <laughs> but he was a fantastic actor. I got to, luckily, I got to go to New York 
to see him. He was playing the Lion King. He was Mufasa mm-hmm. on stage. I think I actually saw him in that too. And yeah. he's phenomenal. He, uh, you know, we would do the recording, and then afterwards we'd have all the actors make grunting sounds, and you know, for all the action sequences, and and he could just turn it on, and he was making these sounds that scared everybody. And I thought, Jesus, give him a break. You know, get, slow down. It's going to hurt his voice. But he was doing this every night on stage, and he showed me a trick. He he could vibrate his palate the soft tissue on the top of his at the roof of his mouth at the back he wasn't using his voice box at all mm-hmm. he was he was vibrating this thing and it sounded amazing so he did this all day and we got some great stuff out of him but he was a sweetheart very very directable and did a great job very inspirational I actually uh, videotaped him and pulled out some face shapes that I couldn't even uh, I didn't even think were capable hmm. um, we were capable of pulling off but yeah, it was a good experience. And that software was totally different than what you had used on Fantasia? Or? Um, we, we used uh, Alias Power Animator on Fantasia, and it was very frustrating. Imagine you know, creating your animation and pressing a button and waiting for 5, 10, 15 minutes while it ran an algorithm to make all the joints work properly. And then when that was done, pressing another button to, to do the render waiting for that and that's and only then would you see if it worked or not mm-hmm. so a, th- a good third of my time was spent waiting on that movie and that's very frustrating on Dinosaur we use Soft Image which is a great program mm-hmm. very intuitive easy to learn great graph editor um, but we used Maya for our facial system because it was and had what we call open architecture which basically means you can write stuff that talks to it. Softimage didn't have that. And we needed a good interface for our facial system because neither package had what we wanted. Mm-hmm. So would you animate from one package to the next, go back had and forth? It, yes, and that was, again, that was frustrating too. So you do all your body work in one, and then when you're ready to do facial, you have to save it, port it, import it to the other one, open it, and again, that all wow. takes time. Frustrating, but it, it at least gave us, you know, it was both, both packages were very powerful. Both did a great job, but they were separate and distinct. And um, uh, it was something that I wanted to see changed in the future, you know. Right. Uh, but Maya was the package that we've ended up with since yeah. then. Yeah, so like the next show was Wildlife then, right? Wildlife came right after. And um, I think one of the problems with that project um, was that it was rushed into production. Uh, the studio did not have another project, another CG project ready for us when we rolled off that movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was pushed in way too early with uh, Roger Gould um, and Howard Baker as directors. It looked fantastic. We had Hans Barker doing right. a lot of the artwork, and it just looked amazing. And I was the animation supervisor on that movie, which meant I got to run the department and uh, set everything up. We, you know, we started developing the tools that we'd been using at the time, like timing chart, shelf control, um, and pushing them forward. Yeah, that's kind of what I robust. wanted to ask too. Is like, what was the philosophy be- behind designing these tools? Like, what was well, there a different approach, or did you look at the way things were and say that it should be this way? Or, well, I remember when I interviewed Roger for the part uh, for the role on uh, on wildlife. I remember saying to him, "Look, you know, I know how not to do it." You know, I've worked so many ways that are so frustrating and difficult that, you know, I definitely don't want to do that again. And uh, and he listened and gave me the opportunity to do it. And the first thing I set out to do was look at the inefficiencies of the way people were working. And over the years, I've tried working stop motion. You know, uh, I've done a little bit of stop motion in the past, a long, long time ago. So I've, I've tried to work straight ahead. I've tried layering mm-hmm. and pose to pose. And pose to pose is the best way to animate in my book. It's the most economical use of your time. 
which allows you to spend more time with those and strengthening those poses. And the stronger they are, then everything else falls into line and backs it up. Right. And it's just a great way also to, to interact with the director. Directors don't want to wait until the last minute to see something. So working straight ahead, like stop motion, scares people. You know, if the director says to you, I need to see it by Friday, it needs to be done by Friday, mm-hmm. then you want, to, you want him to see it early. Yeah, you know? and layering gives you a watered-down version. And, and that, you know, you show, you show somebody something layered on ones. Early on. Early on, yeah. and you're just inviting trouble. All you're looking at is crappy in-betweens, you know. And, and when you layer, you don't have any poses in there. Mm-hmm. So you're hoping that you're going to get somewhere strong by the end of it. Pose to pose at least gives you a chance to give it, put a strong foundation in your scene. Yeah. And um, I wanted to work that way too. Unfortunately, a lot of the animators we had at the time had no traditional experience. We had a lot of CG guys. So we set off on what I call a boot camp. And we trained all of the digital guys towards working in a more traditional way. And had you worked this way on like a dinosaur? Had you, yeah. had you proven this theory of... I, I, I did, but I didn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Layton, who was the, uh, the animation director on that film was from stop motion and didn't encourage anybody to work that way. In fact, you know, I think he, he would have preferred everybody work more straight ahead or layered. He definitely wanted that very smooth look. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I worked my own way. I worked all pose to pose and it was almost like a little secret cult that went on where, uh, I remember Dick Zondi came on the show quite late and he got the character of Bruton and he would come in to me and go, so how are you working? I'm like, well, and I showed him, I'm like, I'm just too posed to pose. And he's like, really? It actually works? I'm like, yeah, if you just do it like this. And, you, and before you know it, you know, there were a whole bunch of us kind of, you know, working that way. And it worked great for us, you know. Um, all of our facial work was done the same way, all poses. And uh, it was very efficient. I was able to do, you know, a good quantity of work and make it look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and show it early and, and get give the director and, and supervisors, other supervisors, enough kicks at the can to make the scene work as well as it possibly right. could. I also work linear. Uh, for anyone that works in CG, that means your curves are all flat or straight. And I never went to curve tangents at all. And I still don't. Mm-hmm. And that freaks a lot of people out. But there's a whole bunch of people work like that now. And, you know, I think it gives your timing a little bit more bite. It's more predictable. And it's a constructive way to work. So Yeah, I agree. But, yeah, um, the, the, um, the workflow... I sort of proved it out to myself on Dinosaur, and I, I carry that into wildlife. And, you know, before it got shut down, we were doing some really interesting, fun stuff. We played around again with ones and twos and realized, you know what, to, to, to make a whole feature film and have ones and twos in there is actually more of a headache to manage that through the pipeline because right. we use a compositing technique on the back end. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's fraught with problems. So, yeah, we, we did a lot of cool stuff on that, on that show. But eventually that show got cancelled and it got cancelled. The you story guys got rolled over to where? We we got well, we had big layoffs. Um, mm-hmm. we had some layoffs after Dinosaur in CG. We had more layoffs when Wildlife uh, went down. I think we, we ended up hiring or just keeping like fifteen people. And that was it. Wow. And uh, you know, it, it, the last couple well, in the last I guess four or five years we've seen a lot of bitterness in the industry, particularly from traditional folks who, you know, uh, as when we downsized here in the right. traditional ranks, it was very painful for right. people. It's actually been happening in CG here for a lot longer. And a lot of the CG folks have been through it two or three times already. Right. Um, Especially like with the secret lab and all that. Yeah. And I think um, that was an interesting opportunity, actually. When, when Wildlife went down, there was no other CG feature film. 
and uh, uh, they brought in DreamQuest um, to uh, basically keep us alive and keep us going. Um, and I think, you know, on, on paper, certainly it's, it was a good idea. They brought in some projects like uh, 102 Dalmatians mm-hmm. and Rain of Fire, Kangaroo Jack, stuff like that. And, you know, a variety of different things. The problem with it, from, from my perspective anyway, was we were going to operate as a service facility. And I think that's where things didn't, didn't go as well as certainly management would like. But uh, gave it a shot. I took on the role of uh, animation supervisor on Rain of Fire. Um, I've, you know, I mean, the thing that inspired me to get into this business in the first place was special effects, like movies like Star Wars yeah, and Jaws yeah, me and too. I'm Close Encounters. Who <laughs> can't say that? You know? But, but uh, so I've always had a secret desire to work on a, a special effects movie. I thought, here you go, dragons sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And um, for the most part, it was a, it was an uh, interesting project. Um, I think where where I was disappointed was uh, again they started to make this movie before they had a script. And by the time they figured that out, they ran out of money, and we we were at, we were supposed to do like 180 shots or something crazy like that, and we had all this cool stuff figured out. It was a massive Spitfire Dragon air battle uh, mm-hmm. through London, and it was a fantastic uh, movie in theory. And then when we got to actually make it, we had a lot less time and money um, to deal with it. But but we got to do some cool stuff. We developed uh, shelf controls again. We developed the tools. Mm-hmm. Um, got to try different techniques we used cloth for the wings there was a lot of cool technology written we wrote a fire simulation program and um yeah i think yeah. what was on screen did look good it looked good yeah. and and uh i'm fairly proud of what we did um a few shots that were just rushed through um at the end just because they didn't have as much money and was it a lot different to work with the live action director did he understand what I animation never, was I, all about i had one meeting with him really and that was for about an hour and i never saw him again after that <laughs> and and that was well, who directed you? Well, um, again, this I learned very valuable lessons on Rain of Fire. I've always tried to take something good or bad out of every project I've mm-hmm. worked on. And uh, the thing I got out of this was I, definitely too many cooks can spoil the the, the broth. Um, we we had I had two supervisors over me, both very talented guys, Rich Hoover and uh, Dandaloo, uh, both from uh, physical and digital effects world. Uh, they came came over from DreamQuest. And, you know, everything the animators had to do had to go through me, and then through Dan, and then through Rich, and then through the director. Hmm. So there was a lot of guessing and a lot of second guessing. And what made it tougher was the director was in Ireland shooting plates all the time. And because they were behind, he ended up staying there. And, uh, and that meant, you know, we weren't getting direct feedback from him or as much as I'd like and we, you know the animators weren't as close to the director as they are at feature animation uh, so that was, that was something I definitely did not enjoy about that project um, it caused a lot of frustration and I, I remember there was one animator who's still at Disney he was, he was animating this scene very important scene in the film and um, I, I wasn't getting what I wanted out of the scene so I remember sitting down um, with the animator and saying okay here's what I want made them jump through hoops I spent a lot of time going over it and then it had to go through another supervisor who made their changes and another supervisor who made their changes and then the director who wanted more changes and ultimately the animator got screwed mm-hmm. they got caught and pulled in different directions I, I, I think I know who, well I know who you're talking about yeah. but I think he said he did that shot 72 times yeah th- it was it was crazy and, and all it does is kick the spirit out of the animator when their first pass was, was good enough mm-hmm. you know or it was better than that it was great it was just their perspective on the scene 
And the lesson I learned was, well, you know what? If, if, if I want to keep this animator, to keep pushing on this animator and get great work out of them, you have to let them have ownership on the work, and you can't do that. You can't pull an animator two different ways. Right. Um, so I made a vow to sort of ne- never do that again. I think that definitely carried over onto Chicken Little. I mean, that's kind of the role you took. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting. I've done this role three times on a feature film, if we include wildlife, even though it didn't get made. Mm-hmm. Um, I still spent a year and a half on that film and trained the animators, and we did some work on it. And I've done it differently on every film. But Chicken Little was the one where I feel I got it right. I got the role right, and that was... Again, it was a different challenge, and I think you, you know you really have to sculpt yourself around, mold yourself to the director as well. Right. In this case, Mark Dindle on Chicken Little was just a fantastic director. You know, he's very generous. Uh, he's very secure in himself. He knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. And he's also he uh, sound sound weird, but he's a big guy. You know, he 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 likes to let he, he's he embraces ideas and even if they're different to his he'll listen to them and he may even go with them mm-hmm. and if he doesn't he'll tell you why yeah you know and and that's that was a great experience for me so he pretty much let me run the run the department any way i wanted to but he was very he was very clear with me up front about what he wanted and what he liked and I remember he sat down and he showed me this goofy stuff from the 50s um where uh, goofy was playing baseball and it's like a seven-minute, eight-minute short that was done in a month. And back then, they were turning one of these out every four weeks. Mm-hmm. That was helpful to know because when you look at the credit list, there's maybe only four animators working yeah. the whole thing. So here you have a bunch of guys who are doing this amazing creative work. And the only way they can get it done quickly is because they they have ownership of what they do. Mm-hmm. They're really in charge of the ideas, the execution and and the finish and everything they weren't they didn't have those three four supervisors over them pulling them in different directions and the work was loose it was fun it was entertaining it was creative and just fun to look at you know Mm. and i thought okay that's this is what mark wants and we're going to have to create an environment for people not just give them tools and the ability to do squash stretch and all this cool stuff but create an environment that supported them stepping up to the plate to come up with ideas and feeling confident that they're going to have ownership over it. Um, so that, that I set out with that in mind, and that pretty much meant me closing the gap between the director and the animators. In other words, you know, uh, every single scene on the movie, I've seen at every stage, from, from rough blocking, uh, uh, broken down to finished, with the director multiple times and in sweatbox and so on. But Mark knows what he wants, is able to give clear direction, and if he wasn't sure, he'd ask me or the, the animator. And whoever had the best idea, he'd go with that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was great. So a lot of the times, all I had to do was just shut up. And that's really hard to do. <laughs> because uh, in this role, I can, I, I can open my mouth and I can say things. And it, you know, it's been that way in the past. And I thought, the smartest thing here is to keep the gap small. Yeah. Let the animators have one clear vision of where they need to go. And it worked. It worked great. It did. It was great. It, yeah. I mean, there are tons of times when you just have an idea for a shot and you say it and Mark says, yeah, and you shut up. And, <laughs> yeah, and it moves forward. And it's a constructive process. And if there's an issue, a technology issue or something, you'll, uh-huh. you'll chime in. And, and I got plenty to say on the movie, too. I mean, basically, I supervise any non-main character. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I got a lot of creative feedback from that, too. But that was my toughest challenge was learning to bite my lip. Yeah, uh, and I would see a scene. I'd be on rounds. I'd be looking at something, and I would not like it. But I have to remind myself, I'm not liking it because it's not the way I would do it. 
doesn't mean it's wrong. That doesn't mean it's not good. It's just not. And if I had a, a like you say, a technology issue or even a, a continuity issue or creative issue, mm-hmm. sometimes I'd say it. But Mark would always be very clear. Uh, sometimes he'd agree, sometimes not, and that was fine. But I learned to manage properly on that show, and that was a, a great experience for me. Right. But I did learn a valuable lesson that the fewer voices you have driving the creative side of it, the better the end result's going to be. Provided you give the artist ownership over what they do, you'll always get something good. Right. Always. And that concludes part one of my interview with Eamon Butler. We'll wrap up the second half in the next show. As always, you can go to the Animation Podcast website at www.animationpodcast.com. There you can find my email, animationpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find the phone number for the feedback hotline, which is area code 206-666-2668. And that's a phone number you can call 24 hours a day and leave a message. And so far, every message has been in a show. And as a matter of fact, I have two phone calls to play on this show, so here they are. Hi there, this is John Romeo. I just wanted to say how much I am enjoying your podcast. Uh, I I really enjoy the interviews, and even though they get kind of into the details, I I really like that. I think that's something that's so interesting, just hearing all the details rather than these broad overviews, hearing the stories and just the history of of your folks. And I think I speak for all of your listeners when I say, please, more, more, more. We'd love longer interviews per episode, more episodes, uh, more interviews. We just, I just, uh, I really enjoy it. I, I love the stories that we get to hear, and I know you do this in your spare time, and it's, uh, I assume you don't get paid, but, uh, you know, we just, we really appreciate the work you do, and the more you could give us, the better. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Trevor Sleeman from Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm a student right now at uh, Art Institute of Seattle studying animation, and uh, your show is just uh, very, very helpful to uh, a student animator who's learning this new skill and and, and to hear from uh, all these famous people who've been in the business it's great uh keep up the good work uh thanks hey john and trevor i really appreciate your uh, messages thanks for calling i guess all i can really say is uh thanks and uh, i'll just keep doing my best and hopefully this year we'll get more shows out than last year and it'll be fun so just keep listening and i think we'll all have a pretty good time and that's going to wrap it up for show number 10 so until show number 11 thanks for tuning in